Well, it's great to be here with you. And if you're at the camp on the weekend, well done, you're here. Uh, do you remember the Global Atheist Convention in Melbourne in 2018? Just uh, nod if you, my guess is you don't. It was called Reason for Hope, or Reason to Hope, and Salman Rushdie was uh, to be the main speaker. Uh, sadly, actually, Salman Rushdie was attacked by someone uh, in New York at a literary convention or something last year. He survived, but he's lost an eye now, uh, sadly. 2018, though, he was scheduled to come and speak Reason to Hope. The reason you don't remember it is it didn't happen. Why did it not happen? Well, uh, the Convention Committee secured Victorian government funding, blah, 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 etc. However, ticket sales have been substantially below expectations and below the levels for previous conventions, so unfortunately the convention cannot proceed. Why? I can't help but wonder that, even in Melbourne, people worked out, if you take atheism to its logical conclusion, there's no reason to hope. None. Uh, no one's probably put it clearer than Richard Dawkins, who's the kind of the, I guess, the unofficial spokesman for the, the new atheists. He says this, the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil and no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. So, folks, we are all doomed, if that's correct. In fact, uh, doom is the name of a book that I read by Neil Ferguson famous historian who says he's an atheist. Uh, Doom, <laughs> I'm not sure, I read it during the lockdown, the pandemic. It probably wasn't the greatest book to be reading. Um, it's all about basically pandemics, natural disasters, and these huge accidents. Here's one of his cheerier paragraphs. He says this, each year around the world, around 59 million people expire, roughly the entire population of the world at the time King David ruled the Israelites. We are all doomed um, even if medical scientists are able to extend life expectancy still further, as some project beyond a century, life is a terminal condition. There's a friend of mine, George, who's a, who's a Christian, always talking about Jesus. He got talking to a cab driver a while ago about, about death. And George says to the cab driver, um, do you know what the mortality rate is in Australia? And the cab driver said, you know, shrugged his shoulders. George says, it's 100%. And the cab driver said, well, I knew it was high. Huh? <laughs> yeah. So, folks, we're all going to die. Aren't you glad you came along this afternoon? Huh? We're all going to die. When you're young, huh? uh, like, say, just about to turn 40, right? When you're young, death, yeah, you, it's kind of an academic thing in the distance. Once you get a six or a seven or whatever it is in front of your age, you're reminded of it every morning as you get out of bed and try and warm up. I asked uh, one of my relatives about 20-something years older than me, I said, do you ever, because he's in, well into his 80s now, I asked him, do you ever think about dying? What he, may, he said, well, my mother told me it's inevitable, so there's no point thinking about it. I thought, well, I guess, I guess that's the way a lot of people cope with it. You just don't want to think about it. That's how you cope. But as my mate George says, the guy in the taxi, no one's getting out of here alive. And it's not just that person, it means, it means that every loving relationship ends in heartache. 
In the last few years, uh, we've, uh, I got the privilege of actually doing the funerals for Kathy's, uh, Kathy's dad, my wife Kathy, my wife's mum and my wife's dad. Kathy's mum and dad were married for 70 years. And as I did a funeral, she was 19 when she was married, she was 89 when she was widowed. 70 years. And yet, ends in heartache. You know, it's very hard, the Global Atheist Convention, it's very hard to live without hope. Real hope in the future makes such a difference now. Let me tell you a story that, I've, um, that I saw that how powerful hope is. In um, 2010, uh, in uh, the northern part of Chile, or Chile, at the San Jose gold mine, there was a massive cave-in. Right, August 2010, and there were 33 miners trapped 600 metres underground. Now they were trapped, the 33 of them were trapped for 69 days, and they all got out safely, which is the longest period of time anyone's ever been trapped in a mining disaster and actually survived. How they got them out was um, uh, in like a torpedo tube in a shaft, and they put them up on the cable one at a time, etc but it took a long time to find them underground. And so uh, there's the, the uh, torpedo tube thing coming out. Uh, but they were trapped, the miners were trapped underground. They didn't know if anyone would find them. And after 16 days of sitting in the dark, they said half of them were contemplating suicide and the other half were contemplating cannibalism. Now I thought, well, that could maybe work, but um, no, anyway, um, so they're, they're basically, and then something happened at day 17. That is, a little shaft, let me go back, they managed to drill a tiny shaft from the surface down into the cavern that the miners were in. Not big enough for anyone to escape, but it just meant light and hope. And they lived on that, they were able to get stuff down to them, for 52 more days they survived. And then... They all got to the surface and everyone was really happy. Uh, wives and girlfriends were waiting there. Everyone was happy except there was one man whose wife and girlfriend both showed up. So it wasn't quite so happy for him. They even made a movie about it. What's the point? Hope in the future, that shaft of light, makes all the difference now. Now what I'd like to do is read a story with you that is really about a shaft of light that comes from God via his son into our dying world. It's a story that if you grasp hold of it, it changes everything, not just in the future, but now. So if you want to have a look, let's have a look at John chapter 11. All I'd like to do is read that story. I'm actually going to read through to verse um, 44. I'll read the story and then ask two questions. So if you, you can follow it, um, the first 26 verses are printed there, or if you've got a, a Bible, even better. Just to put it in context, John was Jesus' closest friend and he's written the story of what Jesus said and did. Um, in John chapter 10, Jesus is in debate once again with the religious leaders of his time and Jesus is kind of hinting that he is, that he is God become one of us and they are, you know, um, scandalised and they actually plan to kill him. And that Jesus is not ready for that yet, so he steps back and goes back to a place on the other side of the Jordan River uh, where he's been, they, they were baptising earlier. Uh, there's, there's two places uh, in Israel called Bethany. One, one is Bethany near Jerusalem, 
which is the little village where the action takes place in this story. The other is called Bethany beyond the Jordan and is literally on the eastern side of the Jordan. So when they send a message to Jesus, he's at Bethany beyond the Jordan uh, and the story takes place in the other Bethany. Okay, so let, let's read the story. Uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now that hasn't happened yet. Um, in John chapter 12, Mary does that. Um, keep reading, you get the story. Verse 3. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. So all the sadness and heartache that's going to happen for this little family, ultimately for God's glory, and, and they'll see that in hindsight. At the time, they just grieve. Verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus, yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Now here's the thing, the, this is a new international translation, great translation. But you see the beginning of verse 6, yet, it's not quite as strong as the original. What John says is Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus, therefore he heard when Lazarus was sick, he stayed two more days. It's because he loved them that he stayed longer. Why? Because something needed to happen that they and us needed to know about or needed to see. So verse seven, then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea, uh, two days later. Um, but Rabbi, they said a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you and yet you were going back there. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. Now, it's a little hard. I'm still trying to work out exactly what Jesus means. He may be saying, like he said back in chapter 8, I am the light of the world. So there he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Or later on, when Jesus is about to be arrested, he'll say, now is the hour that darkness reigns. I'm not, I'm not sure which one he means. So verse 11, after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. Tell you what's interesting, when you read the New Testament, whenever the New Testament writers talk about someone who follows Jesus, we call them a Christian, someone who follows Jesus, that they've died, they don't say they're dead. They say they're asleep. Why? Because sleep is, uh, is temporary, uh, it's nothing to be afraid of, and you'll wake up from it one day. So Jesus says he's going to wake him up. Um, verse 12, his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. Um, so then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And then you get a hint of why Jesus waited two extra days. Verse 15, for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe Sorry, that you, so that you may believe. Let us go to him. In verse 16, then Thomas called Didymus. The word Didymus just means he had a twin. That was the one the way they talk about uh, people who had you know, twin brother or sister. Um, then Thomas called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. 
Thomas really must have been a little ray of sunshine, I reckon. Uh, you know, the great optimist. Anyway, now we're not told how many of the disciples went with Jesus. Uh, we can be sure John was there. Thomas, we don't know how many others went with him. So verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, why is that significant? The scholars tell me that the rabbis of the time believed that when someone died, their spirit kind of hovered around the body for three days. And then after that, it was like the spirit was gone. Um, John's saying, no, no, it's four days that Lazarus has been dead. Verse 18, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. Uh, if, you like, if you like details, John actually says it was 15 stadia. Uh, stadia was 185 yards. I worked it out as 2.76 kilometres. Okay, why does that matter? There's still a village today. Uh, it's run by an, Arab, an, Arab name, an Arabic name called um, Al-Lazira, which means the place of Lazarus. You can visit it today. Point being, um, this stuff really happened. It's not Mordor or Harry Potter or Star Wars. It, like, you can go there and see where this happened. Verse 19, um, because it was only a couple of kilometres from Jerusalem, um, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them uh, in, their, in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. That fits what we know about the sisters. Martha was the get up and go girl. I don't know if you remember the story in Luke about her doing all the hospitality and cooking, etc. Um, verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's not only she's meaning to make him feel guilty or pointing the finger. It's more of those if only sort of statement. If only you'd been here. Verse 22, she says, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, what does she mean? Because Martha's a, you know, a, she's a Jewish lady in the first century, she would have believed with the other believing Jews that there would be a resurrection day at the end of time and God would judge everyone. Um, Daniel, Old Testament book, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. There'll be a judgment day and everyone will rise. And Martha says, yeah, I know, he'll, he'll rise in the last day. Now then Jesus makes, if you look, verses... Um, uh, 25, 26, uh, Jesus then makes her a promise and asks her a question. Let me come back to that in a moment. Now, I'll just finish the story, okay, from verse 28. We'll come back to his promise. Verse 28, after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Another, if only, sad greeting. 
Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. The deeply moved word there is one of the few words uh, in the New Testament that's very hard to uh, translate. When it's used outside the New Testament, it's used of a horse snorting, like being cranky or hard to control. Uh, when it's used of people, it means anger or outrage. So Jesus looks around at the weeping and the mess and the sadness and saying actually he feels angry or at least really stirred up. Um, verse 34, where have you laid him? Jesus asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Uh, shortest verse in the Bible, actually. Jesus wept. Why? Well, I figure it's not so much for Lazarus, because Jesus knows he's going to fix that in five minutes. But he's looked around at Mary and Martha weeping and others who are sad and just the heartache and the mess. And um, he weeps. I wonder if you ever do. I mean, I, I don't know if I weep. I, you know, read newspapers or websites and look at the mess and the and, and feel bad. Jesus looks out at our world and weeps. How much does he care? Well, in a few chapters, he'll give his life to fix it. He cares. He weeps. Verse 36, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus once more deeply moved. That's that kind of wound up, almost angry um, word again. Deeply moved came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour, for he has been there four days. It's not as good a translation as the King James Bible. The King James Bible, she says, Lord, he stinketh. So um, anyway, that, that's four days. Um, verse 40, then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he'd said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Um, the Jewish burial customs in the first century weren't like the Egyptians. They didn't empty the body. They didn't wrap the body up completely like a mummy but they did wrap cloths around the body and spices and things, mainly to try and keep the smell under control. So Lazarus comes out wound up and would have had a cloth over his face. So he comes out, sort of can hardly walk. And um, my guess is they were all freaked out with a mixture of joy and fear, which is how most people reacted to what Jesus did. All right, so there's the story. How about two questions? Did it happen? How do we understand it? Did it happen? What does it mean? Uh, did it happen? Here's what might seem a little strange. This story is only in John's gospel. Okay. You think, wow, this story, why didn't they all repeat it? Well, 
My guess is that so many things happened in those three years, they couldn't all record everything. We don't know how many of the disciples came with Jesus that day. Thomas, yes. John, yes. We don't know how many of the others. And each of the Gospels tells their own version or like camera angle of what Jesus said and did. Okay, so John decides he'll record this story. Now, why believe it? It's because this event is in a way a picture of or linked to Jesus' own resurrection. And if Jesus' own resurrection is true, then his claims about himself and what John tells us is believable. Did the resurrection of Jesus happen? I reckon the question you've got to answer is this. What changed or transformed Jesus' disciples? Their first century monotheistic, right, fiercely, there's only one God, orthodox Jewish men and women, and something's transformed them in a fairly short, very short period of time to believe that Jesus is God, become human, has conquered death, and is the Messiah. And it, they are so, so transformed that the message exploded across the ancient world. Now, what changed them? I've read every other theory that I can find, and none of the other theories come close to explaining what, really, what actually happened. If you're not sure, um, ask one of the pastors here, or Tim or Macca or someone, then it's not too hard to read the other theories or have a look at the evidence. Okay. Did Lazarus rise? I believe yes, because I'm convinced that Jesus himself rose not long after that. Now, second question, though, how do we understand it? In John's gospel, John doesn't call miracles miracles. Okay, so we'll say that you know, Jesus does these amazing things. He doesn't call them miracles. He doesn't use the word that Matthew, Mark and Luke use, which is like uh, dunamis, acts of power. John calls them signs. Now, what does a sign do? A sign points to something more important than itself. Or a sign tells you what something means. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. You'll get it. It's easy. Jesus does a miracle sign and then says it tells you something about him. So he feeds a crowd of 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and then he says, I am the bread of life. Or he opens the eyes of a blind man and then he says, I am the light of the world. Or he raises Lazarus from the dead and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Okay, so there's signs pointing to who he is. Now, let's, let me go, remember I said we'd look at a couple of promises that Jesus makes? Here we are. When Martha goes out, John read this for us earlier, when Martha goes out to meet him and Jesus says, your brother will rise again, what does he say to her? All right, here we go. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Let me just unpack those phrases because it's absolutely loaded. When Martha says, yeah, there'll be a resurrection one day, Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection. Meaning, um, yep, there'll be a day when everyone's raised, that Jesus promised, and we'll be judged on how we've responded to God and, and what we knew of him and his offer of forgiveness. And folks It'll either be an eternity with God in a new creation or be sent away to an empty, lonely, hopeless eternity. That, that's the judgment that'll come. 
And Jesus is saying not only will he be the judge, but he's the one who will raise people. He, he is the resurrection. He'll make it happen. Okay, so yep, that's what he's saying about himself. But you notice the next phrase, he talks, the next two little sentences are loaded. He says this, he talks about physically and spiritually. He talks about people who trust him, the physical side of life and the spiritual side of life. Okay, so let's have a look. This is physically, he says, he who believes in me will live, and belief and trust, same thing, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. Now, what's he saying? You believe or trust Jesus, yep, you will still die physically, but you'll live again at the resurrection. Right? So, yep, you believe in me, yeah. Um, you'll, even though you die, you will live again at the resurrection. Okay. You with me? Yeah. Um, if... More than three of you nod, I'll keep going. If not, I'll just have to go over it again. Does that make sense? Yeah? Yes. I was at least four of you nodded then. Okay. All right. Physically, yes. But what's the second sentence mean? Second sentence says, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. He's talking about spiritually. All right. So, yeah, you'll die physically and you'll live again. But if you believe, if you live by trusting him, you'll never die spiritually. Now, what does he mean? It's because our culture, and most of us think of death as the end. That's not the way the Bible thinks. The Bible thinks of death as separation. Okay? Separation. So, if you don't know God through Jesus, the Bible says you're spiritually dead. There you go. That's pretty in your face, isn't it? So, you're spiritually dead. What does that mean? It means your spirit is separated from God. What we call physical death isn't the end. It's a separation of your spirit from your body. Right? Um, the Bible talks about the second death, which is separation of spirit and resurrected body from God forever. So death's about a separation. Now, if you understand that, what's he saying? He's saying, you live and believe or trust in me, you'll never die. You'll never be separated from him. You'll always be with him. And then he asks the question, do you believe this? Now in the Bible, belief and trust, same thing, same word. Why would we trust him? Well, he's the one who wept over our world, etc. There's compassion there and the power to fix it as he raises Lazarus. The one you can trust is the one who has compassion and power. Now, how do people respond? Well, if you keep reading, you see that some of the Jewish people who see this believe in him and trust him as the Messiah. And the some can see Lazarus raised from the dead and they go and tell Jesus' enemies who plan to kill him. What does that show us? Well, belief or trust in Jesus isn't primarily a matter of evidence. It's good to look at the evidence and show people and etc. But it's mostly a matter of the heart before God. How does Martha respond? She says, yes, Lord. She told him, I believe that you are the Christ, Messiah, the Son of God who was to come into the world. Uh, just as an aside, and then I'll finish up. Sometimes it can be hard to work out what we actually believe. Um, like I've, I've been following Jesus, I think it's 44 years now, and I still... I still have doubts. I still wonder, do I 
really believe this? Do I believe it enough? What do I believe? And maybe you're like that too. Maybe you think, oh, do I really believe Jesus? Do I not? How do I know? Sometimes I doubt, etc. Um, Jordan Peterson, who's a Canadian psychologist all over the internet, etc., said something I thought was interesting. He said, if you want to know what you actually believe, here it is. He says, you can only find out what you actually believe rather than what you think you believe by watching how you act. Isn't that interesting? Right. So you think, oh, well, do I really believe what, do I really trust you? Well, have a look at how you act. Do you live with Jesus as your Lord? Do you actually trust him and his wisdom and care and how you live? That's how you know. Right. Interesting. Jesus promises, trust him right, and we'll never die. We'll never be separated from him and we will live again. And that trust, yep, sure, end of life, when you die, makes all the difference, but it does make a difference now. And if you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus, understanding that and that hope in the future does make a massive difference now. And if you are... Look, sometimes it can feel like not a lot. Sometimes you have to hang on. Yes, he did rise from the dead. Yes, sometimes it can feel like you're just hanging on. And it, but it's enough. It's a little bit like that shaft of light that came 600 metres for those miners, etc. Just a little hole in the wall and the light. And it may not have seemed like a lot, but it was enough. And knowing Jesus rose again, knowing his promise... It's enough to hold on to now, and it makes all the difference. Can you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for this promise of Jesus that those who trust him will live even though they die, and those who live and trust him will never die. We thank you that Jesus' own resurrection proves that he can keep this promise. We ask, please, we may all come to trust him and so live with hope and confidence and joy. And we ask this in his name. Amen.